1: I went to work on the second cut of the bar. By about quarter past two that there was enough. Even though really just the bar had been cut clean in one place and three quarters in another, Stan had to climb up and pull that bar up and he made about six, seven maybe at a tug almost eight inches of space and I stripped down and greased up and, and, and went out
0: of there. Three floors up into nowhere. Welcome back. Drug trafficker David McMillan spent two years Plotting his escape from Thailand's Klongpring Prison, otherwise known as the Bangkok Hilton. Faced with an impending death sentence, Macmillan resolved to do what no other Westerner had ever done. Cut his way out of his cell, scale the seven walls and cross the sewer moat to freedom. Before we get started, make sure you're getting involved with AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it every single morning. I can be a bit useless when it comes to making sure I put all the right vitamins and good stuff into my body, but AG1 is super easy and convenient. AG1 is a single solution that supports my entire body and covers my nutritional basis every day. I take it every morning when I wake up before I have my coffee. And if you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com forward slash Andy Rowe. That's drinkag1.com forward slash Andy Rowe. And by doing so, you'll also be supporting this podcast as well. And there's also some tickets available to my Buffalo Trace whiskey live shows this month. Just head to designmynight.com and search for Andy Rowe or click the link in the bio on my Instagram. For our first show, we've got former undercover cop and Millwall football hooligan James Bannon and former SAS legend Nigel Ely. Tickets are selling quickly, so make sure you get involved. I hope you enjoy the episode. David McMillan, thank you very much for coming on the show. Always a pleasure to meet new people, Andy. Likewise, likewise, likewise. So you were in Thailand and you were picking up some money, tying up some loose ends, and then what happened? You decided to take some drugs out of Thailand? No, I, I uh, you know, I
1: listened to some offers and whatnot, but I, I was on a tight schedule there. I didn't want to um, get sidetracked into anything, and I didn't have time to look at it. But when I was at the airport, I picked up that uh, they were everywhere watching me, and I didn't know whether they were going to let me go or not. But
0: in any event, I had to leave because... Who was looking for you at the Thailand airport?
1: Okay, um, on on the, on the phone that uh, uh, I'd spoken to my Chiang Mai friend, um, his uh, uncle had been one of the big three or four in the, in the Golden Triangle, so the DEA were very interested in what he was up to. And then when they heard me, uh, they cont- the American DEA contacted Australia, and they said, no, he's here. We know he's here. We, we heard him yesterday.
0: I didn't know what they were going to do, and I wasn't going to leave it to chance. So the DEA just wanted to have a chat with you to understand if you were involved in other stuff. They'd
1: want to know whether right. I had other identities, or they would know if I left the, the country, they could follow me the other end, but right. I might lose them. Here they had their only chance to you know find some excuse. I still never found out what their ultimate plan was because they they knew that um, as far as the people who had been observing me uh, in the last at last day in thailand i didn't seem to have anything with me and nobody really wanted to stop anything anyway. They were too curious to know what was going on.
0: I left the airport. Thinking everyone was following you. When
1: you're at an airport, you have to, if if you want to leave and you're about to be followed, it's never good to go down to the, where they'd expect you to go to arrivals and join the crowd there. Because it's too easy for them to get a, a car behind you. Where you go to is, when I say arrivals, I mean people have just landed and coming in. You, mm. uh, you stay up at departures and grab a car from there because that can beat all the traffic. So I definitely lost them. When I got into uh, Bangkok City, I took a tuk-tuk and went through department stores. And
0: uh, And this is the DEA that you lost at the airport.
1: Yeah, and the ties were involved as well. I was so rattled by these elaborate plans being shattered that um, I kind of really broke the communications rule. There's, all right, you can't gain anything by talking to anybody, so it would just melt away completely. And I had a place where I could have melted away to, but I mean, they'd they'd taken away the passport that I'd handed over the, the desk, there, the check-in desk. Oh, so you'd
0: got all the way to the check-in at the airport.
1: The girl there at the desk said, "Ah, oh, I just had to um, check something," da, 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 and disappeared.
0: So I had a good look
1: around. And I thought, well they're coming back mob-handed. I'll uh, be led away on, on something or other. Perhaps let go, perhaps not. So it, it wasn't a time to say but I still had the backup passport, and that was a, a New Zealand passport. A New Zealand identity was always quite a good one to have because New Zealanders still do. You know, traveled the world really more than any other Western country I can think of. You'll always find a New Zealander popping up. <laughs> Even in some of the strangest prisons I've ended up in, you know, I'll hear a, a Kiwi. So I went to a travel agency that was connected with this. But so far in the past, they, they wouldn't have known. And as soon as I arrived at that travel agency, you know, I knew there was something wrong. Uh, it just the street was bad. And so I, I should not have been surprised when I saw three plainclothes detectives walk in the door. It was so... just could never have such a level of continuous collapse. And I'd been battling with them for near on 15 years at this stage. At first they were holding me on a fake passport. I had about $50,000... They stole 45,000 of that, held the five as ill-gotten gain. But the next day they came up with, what was it, an, an ounce of heroin that they'd scraped off the floor at uh, the airport. And the Australian police said to them, that, are you sure that's his? Because he would have had a lot more than that. They'd probably all decided... No, we've kind of blown it in a way. Um, if we could have kept him in the background, if he didn't see us, then we would have had somebody to chase around. But now he'd be so alerted anyway. And what, charge him with a passport. You know, what's that worth, a year in Thailand? No, finish him off. Give him the death penalty. Give him the lot. Because any case at the airport is a death penalty over, I think, 20 grams. You know, people drop. They get nervous when they're going through security at airports, so they're always throwing things on the ground. Every night they sweep up quite a a little bag full and they get it out of the toilets and everywhere. So they don't have to go to any secret supply to, to find it. Okay, there was no evidence linking me with it, but it doesn't matter in Thailand. Everybody's guilty.
0: Talk me through arriving at prison. How bad was that? Because you only hear horror stories of what those prisons are like. I'd known kind of what to expect from
1: reports that I've heard and and people I knew that uh, got tangled up there. I knew this much, you can't win the case, that it's likely to be any serious, any kind of a drug case will be from 15 to... 25 to life, 40 years, something like that. Oddly enough, I'd flown over it a few times. I remember looking out of planes, landing at Bangkok, and there'd be lights, lights, urban sprawl, shopping centre at night. Then a dark patch, nothing. Seemed to go on for acres. A few spotty little lights there, you couldn't see anything. What I realised when the the bus arrived at this huge complex, surrounded by a moat of uh, 20 metres wide... Or was it a river or a moat or a sewer? Well, a combination of all of those things, isn't it? And then went over oh. um, bridges and goes through steel doors and another set of steel doors and people. You know. The kids in the, in the prison van going back, uh, you know, bounces along and they're chatting and they're kind of all adapted to it. The, the new arrivals, they kind of looked at them like, oh, you're in for a shock. So I knew it was kind of going to be bad, but I was really hoping that somewhere in this dump there'd be an oasis of rich, well, at least rich if only by friends, helping them, foreigners in there that had their act together and, and there'd be some comfortable, or relatively comfortable place to survive. But it, it was nothing like that. We were herded off, and it was very quiet around the prison. And there's, there's streets within the prison, wide streets, and, and buildings like three, four stories high with just mesh out on, on the outside. A little sound coming from them, but, but not really an awful lot, because they're already locked up after four o'clock. That's the end of their whole day. The new arrivals are lined up, all the clothes are taken off, piled in front of you. You sit there squatting, while the the welcome guard is sitting on a kind of throne with his trustees, the, the toting, crawling... Slime that uh, would look after the officers there. What are trustees? Are trustees prisoners as well? Oh yes, they're prisoners. I found out the the entire prison was run by trustees. They did all the ledger work. They uh, carried the keys uh, for the inside cells, not the outside and locked and unlocked the doors. And I expected they'd all be informers, and I expected somebody amongst them would come and offer me drugs or this or that, and it would all be a set-up. So I was keeping pretty quiet. But uh, I was looking from the beginning at how to escape but it wasn't looking good. It was so overcrowded that the, the welcoming committee just wrecked everything the boys had. They squeezed their shampoo and any liquid thing they might let them have onto a piece of old newspaper and threw the bottle away. Uh, they had bars of soap. They just hacked them in half. They had their heads shaved, um, and then they give you a plastic. They give you a plastic bowl. I think they give you that much, and it's a very useful plastic bowl. We shouldn't run it down. It's. And that's where your food goes in and that's your washing implement because a shower is really a bird bath where you stand at a big tank and scoop down some of the water and throw it over yourself. Um, that's in the outside yard. Uh, How did you sleep? Uh, we were put in cells. Uh, the kind of first night cell, you go somewhere else to another building the next day. You, your head was down the feet of another and and his feet were in your head and that way they were able to pack in 154 I think it was in the first night into a cell that was built for um, 36 and it was just on the floor anyway
0: that must have been so depressing like, people must have were there many suicides? I nearly applauded
1: some old guy that shoved his head uh, under the wheels of a sand truck passing by and popped it like a watermelon uh, the, hey, brave bastard realistic guy too old enough to see the wisdom of it
0: did you ever hear of anyone even trying to escape some street tufts from bangkok and a
1: singaporean actually got out of the dormitory which just took some doing uh, not in a mechanical way but to be i mean the the boss of this little gang was a monster and he, he had friends in this dormitory. So when he put the privacy towels up against the the mesh and the railing of the dormitory, and they they cut it with hacksaws, these boys that got out of that cell, they they all lied to each other about, you know, one of them said, and there weren't many um, mobile phones around in those days. So uh, one said he had one hidden, another one said he knew a way over the wall. One of them said he had a rope. It was the usual escape fantasy that you get in prisons everywhere. But Uh, serious consequences in this case. Now, if I was in their shoes, I would have tried something to get over that damn wall. It was very high, the outer one, and you had to go through three or four walls before you got to it, and it was electrified, it must be said, and a a couple of them had been sparked off the top of it in the past. But they decided to hand themselves in, so the guard on duty, they had to rouse from his slumbers. He, He couldn't believe what he was seeing He kept asking, them, guys, what have you been let out to do? What what are they making you do? And it it, it took him a while to even realise the audacity of it, that somebody would try and get out. Look, stay there. And he he went and got a whole lot of guys who gave them a kicking and threw them into the soy, and they had the elephant chains put on. We wouldn't get to see them anymore because they were upstairs uh, down one end of the corridor. But um, even number one... That key boy, now very top trusty the key boy, even he was sent away from watching what was going to happen and we 'd be downstairs at the tables, which is the only shelter under the imagine a, a building car park with no balls at the side and, and that's that 's where you spent your day underneath the building there'd be um, people selling little things on towels around and cooking stuff. but it all went quiet when it was time for the punishment for for these guys, and you'd hear. Little pleading noises, and then a whack of a stick and, and it was never good form to um, moan or or scream out, or you'd be out of breath anywhere, but the size of the sticks would go up, so you'd hear different the the, the whipping snap sound of the painful and cutting sticks, and then the bone breaking snap of a heavy bat-type stick and then the real thumping crunch into flesh of some monstrous baton and then they'd go quiet of course they'd ruptured things broken things uh, the Singaporean survived all that but I noticed he he, he never spoke again and and the and I found this from other prisons I'd found this from Supermax when the mad guards would go in and chain the there were girls in there as well they chain the little street girls to the toilets and give them a kicking. It's much worse, in a way, to hear somebody else copying it, and you can do nothing about it. God. You can't stop it. You can't. Uh, you can't fight back. In Western prisons, four o'clock in the morning, the door opens and a bunch of guards come in with bad intentions. Well, you try and get a few in before they knock you out, but. It it was uh, really morbid, you know. So, you can imagine escapes were a rare thing and and really never happened. Yeah. And this place, anyway, called the Cure, which was the narcotics remand prison, was no place to do. You didn't get any privacy. I had heard there was a bigger prison for sentence prisoners, and eventually I got myself there. And I thought, well, no, this is at least is organised. They had cash. They had a bank. You know, it was legal. They had a shop. This was, place was very big. I managed to uh, rent a cell, uh, renovate it. The, so there's
0: a full on economy. Oh, there.
1: oh completely. And, you can imagine some place that has, yeah. um, I thought it was 12,000, but I've since learned that it's up to 22,000 people live in there.
0: Right. So it's a full on economy where the prison governor, the prison guards, everyone's benefiting from it. Well, let's talk about the plan, your plan to escape this hellhole. Um,
1: there was one advantage, because it, it, it had never been done, they were not on the alert. The nighttime activities of the staff were sleeping, and drunkenness, and drunkenness was a good thing. Uh, so I made a note to make sure that gifts of whiskey were given out from time to time, and especially that night. The, the big thing about doing everything yourself is, of course, what, doesn't matter where you are, and this applies worldwide in every prison, you don't have to tell anyone. And that will just about save you. The moment you tell anybody, it's just about finished. They will not be able to resist telling their bestest friend. I was going to go with a Swedish guy because he'd helped me out and, you know, he had nowhere to go and all of that. But he was being very sluggish about giving me a photograph for his new passport. He, he just wasn't doing it. And in the end, said, "David, you're not really serious. It can't be done. It's too big. It's too... Now, anyway, it sort of settled him down, but then again, we had the Israelis arrive, and that ruined all of that. They'd escaped from very low level lockup in Chiang Mai. It put the whole city on alert. Their picture was up on every tuk tuk. Uh, the prison guards offered 50,000 baht reward, a huge amount, you know, relatively speaking. And because it's the embarrassment of it uh, that they, they have to get you back. Of course, when they got the Israelis, they'd threw them in a dungeon and broke all their legs with iron bars and put rocks on top of them, so they figured they'd be dead in a couple of days, three days or rather. But they weren't. They'd been in the Israeli army that were made of fairly stern stuff. One crawled out in agony and managed to get water to the other. But by the time we saw them, because of what had happened to them, the legs were all squashed up and misangled and bits where bone had poked through and then healed up rough. So put off my uh, Swedish friend completely. So I, I knew it was on my own, which turned out to be fortunate. So what did the Israelis do wrong to get caught? So the important thing was to have somewhere to go. The reason the Israelis got caught was because they went to a guest house where they knew the guy and he milked them all of their money. I think they had about 12 grand and eventually finked them out to the cops. Uh, and that's why they're in trouble. So I wasn't going to have any of that. I had a, um, a Laotian a Chinese uh, friend that uh, had agreed to get me a passport, and I only had my old radio operator certificate that had a picture in it to, to do it. So he had a, a lot to do. And, and getting out of the place, I'd need ladders and a certain amount of basic equipment, including some rope, of course. And I'd had, they had an army boot factory there, and I had um, about 100 metres of the webbing they use in the army boots, like a, a ribbon, uh, also, uh, one of the guards had taken to sleeping just down on the ground floor outside my third-floor window, which wasn't too good either. So I had to pick the night that he wasn't on. I- I'd been told by my lawyer my case was going to be drawn. It had been dragged on for two years, and I was delaying it every... Opportunity, which, but my case was going to be drawn to an end. I was going to be given a death sentence. May not be carried out, but I'd certainly spend uh, years on death row appealing that away. That wouldn't be good because I'd be chained to a wall, and I, I knew all of that, what that meant. So in uh, August of '96, I. Selling a little or a lot? Go to Bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at Bluenile.com for $50 off. Bluenile.com code LISTEN. Didn't tell anybody, but uh, went up to the room. Uh, I'd thinned it out. Instead of 14, there were only five of us uh, American guy from Hawaii, uh, my man service, head butler, who ran our little uh, office downstairs. He, I only told at, at midnight, my Swedish friend, it's happening tonight. And then had, Hacksaw Blades came in in a, a, a care package, a you know, very elaborately a huge package. With uh, They let the foreigners get away with a bit more stuff because they had no visitors, and that was you know, full of jams and clothes and uh, some specialist foods and uh, cartons of cigarettes that I'd give away to the guards. Uh, I had pretty much everything I needed... The guard wasn't sleeping downstairs. I killed the light. I start <laughs> The room I'd set up, uh, all the furniture turned into something else, including a kind of little scaffold that would go up to the window up on the top, um, and started cutting away. Now, one of the lessons I learned, that everything at night is different. Why? Because there's no sound. The slightest noise carries. You can go in during the day and try and time out how long it takes to cut something, or, or whatever the case... It doesn't mean anything. The first drawer of that tungsten blade on the old steel bar, it sounded like a rumble penetrating through the whole building. So They had to cut slow and used oil, which actually slowed the cutting down even more. Oh God. But after the American guy was shocked when he saw what was going on, and so the cutting continues, uh, one bar has been cut at its base and it sprang away from the building because it had been there for so many decades. The whole building had shifted, and all the bars had shifted, so they were under tension. So I went to work on the second cut of the bar. By about quarter past two, there was enough even though really just the bar had been cut clean in one place and three-quarters in another, Sten had to climb up and pull that bar up, and he made about six, seven, maybe at a tug, almost eight inches of space, and I stripped down and greased up and and, and went out of there. Three floors up into nowhere, there was a, a bookcase, really just a plank of wood, an old building plank that I um, had put in the cell, and that poked out through the window into the night sky and had a, a footstool that was made so it blocked block it against the, the bars. And that way I could, it would hold it steady from wriggling around because you couldn't go out flat on this plank because it would spring up and down. It had to be sideways. So you, you'd have to think fairly carefully about every single cut and move and where something was going to fit in. And I could unreel my army boot, webbing and slide it over. Of course, I got things wrong. Uh, I thought I was going to ebbsail down there instead. I just ended up more or less sliding and gripping and burning my hands all the way to the ground. But at least I was on the ground. It was 2.30 in the morning, and I had an awful lot to do, but at least I could go from there. Hugged the building, got around to my office in the art factory. I'd left the padlocks on the cupboards there open so that would save a fraction of a second getting the key out and opening them an all that and it was so much slower I couldn't move quickly. When I got to the footpath with uh, the stuff I needed to carry in a, in a bag which included eight picture frames I'd had Sten pretend that he was doing oil painting, he did draw some awful paintings, but it gave him an excuse to make up these very heavy frames out of wood and I used those to make the ladder And for the long pieces of the letter, the the frames would go in the middle, they'd be the rung. I had to break into another factory, it was the Chinese Funeral Box Factory, where they used long bamboo poles to dry off the pieces of paper, they painted gold. Small things make a difference, it, it was already slow getting to that point but they'd boarded up a broken bit of mesh there, and so I had to remove a wood panel, and it made so much noise. Every nail protested that I tried to pull out of the thing. Got in there, I made my ladder in two sections, so it was still very, very long and heavy, but I couldn't go back out the way I came. I had to go down to the end of that factory where it was quieter. Uh, I knew where the sleeping guards were. Uh, One of them was suitably drunk, The other one slept anyway. But down this other end, I had to climb up to the roof of this factory, open up corrugated steel panelling of that, push my ladders through, and then climb down that way on the outside of it. So then carried my ladders over to another gate and underneath it, had to pause a while while one of the guards was... um, and came up to splash his face and take a piss or something like that then then he went away but it's getting on it's getting to three o'clock i was in the the first inner wall of the the compound where i was building six how many walls were there i didn't know but there would be seven more i wanted to be out of there by four thirty, and there was the outer towers and i didn't know uh, how to pick which one and i wasn't oh god even the first one took too long. I had an extra bamboo pole and I had an S-hook that I'd kept. And I uh, used gaffer tape to hold that to it at the end of the, the bamboo pole, pulled down some barbed wire to make a, a flat piece. I mean, I had climbed up there thinking, I'll cut this through, but it was cutting through barbed wire is a slow damn thing. and and the the pliers weren't going to do it. It was too tough. So I joined the two ladders together, propped them up uh, and pushed it to the middle of the, the top of the wall, climbed up to the top, used my weight to tip it down to the other side, climbed down on that side and then dragged it through, damaging it somewhat as it scraped along the top. I had to go to another wall to prop it up against that wall. So I'd go to one wall, and I'd climb to the top of that, and no, that doesn't look promising. That's building five. Went through a couple of walls that way to an open space, which did help a bit. I picked up a a scent, a smell of something bad, and and I followed my way to that, and I knew what it was. It was the the building where they kept the AIDS victims. In those days, they all died, and died horribly in pain. So uh, when I looked in the window from where the smell was of rotting flesh. I could see oh, some of them piled on the bed with their grey skin in the moonlight and sort of an oily sweat on them, looking out, and if they'd been regular type prisoners they would have screamed and and cold or or they would have been so confused, they would have done something. And the lights would have been on, but they didn't really keep the lights on there. Not for their sake, you understand that just uh, the guys and the prisoners couldn't bring themselves to look at them. That's awful. Ran across a... Well, I I didn't run. I had to... The only way to walk with this um, now joined together and very ungainly, unbalanced uh, set of ladders was to hold them in the middle and... and My old friend Michael was a a pole vaulter when he was young. Um, And... He said, if you're carrying something like that, you kind of lope along and try and match the equilibrium of it springing. So I did that, thinking, oh, this is working quite well, until it suddenly stopped and I hit the ground. And I'd run into a wall that was invisible because it was entirely made of strands of barbed wire in the night. And there was no, it was too noisy when I put the thing up against it and made a racket. So I had to kind of lower it down and dig under a bit and push it through the mud under there. There was a bit of rain, so I got through under there and, and started on again. And finally, because I knew that the AIDS building was near the general direction of the outside wall, I only had one more building to go before I got to a section between the, the guard towers. And I couldn't see any of the guards poking from over the top. A lot of the time they didn't really go up there, and other times they'd just go up there to sleep. But the... Fundamental problem at that stage was that before you get to the big, very high, uh, what would it be? Would it be 15 metres? It must be close to it, Outer wall. There is a moat inside called Marsbower Creek, uh, known because it was the internal sewer. And lots of Marsbowers floating around in there. But it was also, even though it was covered in mud by this, it was also with a a tangle of barbed wire and debris that had caught on the thing. There was no way that I could keep control of my long ladder and get it to the other side because by the time you get to that outside wall there's only 18 inches of ground there before the wall shoots up so you've got nowhere to stand properly you can't I thought all right if I put the ladder across there on an angle uh, I can walk over but how do I get this heavy ladder back over here I've got to get it and me over at the same time I just I couldn't think of anything. There's Some glow in the air starting. So I could tell I, I didn't have time to debate this. I had to just imagine I was looking down on a a board or something and these pieces were on it and me and the ladder and the two walls. What I did was I uh, the bamboo pole tapered at one end, so I broke off about six inches of that. I had some rope left, of course. I put that uh, ladder on an angle, and walked over to the wall side, anchored, snapped off bit of bamboo into the ground and banged it down with that, the heavy end of the, um, the ladder. So that was secure, and it's on an angle, of course, so it's as secure as I'm going to get it. Tie the rope one side around that, go back across the ladder, and tie uh, a piece of rope to the, the tip of it, then back across the other side again uh, and keep it taut until I walk down so uh, I'm really at the far end. I can pull the thing, but it'll go into shit creek unless I get it up. I turn facing the wall, put the rope over my shoulder, and pull it until I can feel it's lifted up on an angle. Then twist around, keeping it above the protruding barbed wire of the creek, and keep pulling it as I close the gap towards it, and it swings over the top, and then I've got it. I'm over the other side, and and so is the rope. I was at least there, and and to get the thing up against the wall, I had to uh, leave the heavy end on the ground and walk under, go to the the far end, walk underneath it, pushing it up, pushing it up as I go, because I know it's anchored. Only got one way to go, and that is up. And then I twist it around against the wall. So at least I'm there. I clean myself up a bit with the remaining water and climb to the top. Get to the top. I see. Some coloured glow from the horizon there. What time is it? I don't want to even look at my watch at this stage. I think I can see movement of guard in the distance in one of the far towers. But I've got a couple of other problems. Firstly, the wire just at the top of the, the wall is electrified. Secondly, my um, ladder ends about um, two feet before the top of the wall. So I can only hold the pole, uh, which holds the insulators where this electrified wire is. I I put my foot underneath uh, where the insulators were, grabbed hold of the pole and lifted myself up, right up above that insulator. And my rubber trainers, I knew I could trust that on electrified wire. That wasn't going to be a problem. But I couldn't have any shin contact or ankle contact or anything like that. And I did feel just enough of the electric charge tingling through in that little fuzz you get when you're very close to um, a current of that kind. Fortunately, I think it was just household current. They hadn't taken the extra trouble putting it at high amp or anything like that. So I swung over to the other side, didn't bother to fart around much, grabbed that bit of rope, dropped down to the ground. and What were you dressed in at this point? I was dressed in khaki, so I looked like a, a guard. I thought, I'm pretty sure the front gate's that way. I brought one extra device to do something about my deplorable skin color. And it was a pop-up umbrella because I nominally worked, at, I never visited the place, at the umbrella factory. And they, they had a load of them. So I had a, a black pop-up umbrella and knocked that up. And uh, strolled rather casually as a person facing certain death is <laughs> can do Six o'clock was just five minutes away, and when I got around the the front, the stalls were setting up for business, the visits office had a couple of people having a coffee, but I was keeping close under that uh, umbrella. I even saw my own, I want to say my own guard, not the building chief, but one of his deputies got past the the main danger there, and to the main road, which was a, a... Eight-lane highway, one direction the airport, the other direction town. I paused there, uh, collapsed my umbrella and looked back towards the prison and knew that whatever the case, it was over. Then what? Where do you go from there? I had a key to an apartment somewhere and that was supposedly was where my passport to get out of Dodge City was. The key was kept in a balsa wood key tag itself. and There was like a little padlock key on the other end of it. But the the important key, the apartment key, the one that looked like a residential apartment key, was sealed completely. So I broke that open, took two taxis to, uh, to ditch the connection and walked through to uh, the block of flats. Let myself in, or followed the instructions. I'd never seen the place. Uh, to the little toilet at the back, closed the door, locked it. And, yes, there was a mirror at the back uh, where the toilet cistern was. And I'm feeling around there for what should be something like an envelope, I guess. I felt a little envelope dig into my fingers then, and I pulled it out and hurriedly opened the envelope. And there it was, my British passport. And then didn't waste any more time and jumped in a taxi heading off to the airport. Uh, got there, and now I'd given away most of my cash to my room inmates, um, stent, take care of the weak ones, and, and so on. But I had two ATM cuts. Um, I'm looking up at the big board. Oh, I, I picked up um, another friend who um, had deposited at the long-term luggage locker three months before uh, an overnight bag. and Carry on. Bag small with a toiletry set, some uh, socks and underwear, and a change of shirt, pair of shoes, and so on. I was looking at the big board to decide where to go to. I thought, chose Singapore mainly because it was taking off in forty minutes. Went to the the line to leave, and then I'm on the plane, and then I'm in the air, and I've got an hour to dislike this passport more and more. So when I arrived at Singapore and gave it to a young man at the immigration desk, he looked at it. And I just about leant over the counter and said, look, I don't like the look of that thing either, frankly. I've been meaning to complain to the embassy about that. (laughs) But uh, I, I shut up, and he slid it over to the ultraviolet light, and that shows up the big green crown on the British passports and the three little pink ones along the edge of the photograph, which shows whether it's been changed or not. And they lit up like a charm. So that was it. You're away. Waiting for the death at the last minute, but nothing. I'm out in the street. That's it. pretty much it. But I'm in an airport. Nailed it. Take two taxis, pick up a three star hotel. You don't want a one star because there's a flea bag and people target you in their own crappy way and get too curious. You don't want a five star because that's where people who have security details go to and, and people sniff around on who the guests are. Three stars, good. It's got everything you might need. It's kind of ordinary, but food's as good as anywhere and everybody's too knackered and tired or they're busy trying to chat up their clients. Or It, it was perfect, this place. I went in there, dumped my stuff in the room, went to the gift shop, bought a pair of swimming trunks, took the lift to the top floor where the swimming pool was, stood at the edge of that and I'd been up for like about 40 hours straight, uh, a lot of it with a, a lot of energy expended one way or another. Dived in that pool, swam right along the bottom of it to the other side and lifted myself out thinking, well, this isn't any kind of a klong. <laughs> then looked over the hills back towards Thailand and thought, you know, less than 12 hours ago I was inside a a very difficult prison where... If I'd been seen or anything, that would have been it. Wow. Here I am now, or the other alternate universes where I didn't make it, and I'm trussed up like a turkey in some dungeon somewhere. But um, I survived in that and thought, uh, where to now? Of course, what it meant was I had to get out of Singapore pretty quickly and find some utter sanctuary, which I ultimately found after that. In deepest, darkest Balochistan. It took them a long time, by the way, to accept that I'd, I'd left the prison.
0: How'd you find that out? Uh,
1: a friend of mine who um, popped up just a couple of years ago, who was there after I'd left, they thought I was still in the prison somewhere. Uh, they thought I'd been upset, and that's why I'd climbed out of my cell. That I was angry about something and hiding just to, you know, niggle them a bit or something like that. They, the guards themselves, looked up at the the, the the bar being open, and then there was no sign of how a person would have got down to the ground from there, and it just kind of shook their heads because they don't really do a count when they open the door in the morning, not myself anyway. Why would they? You know, it's one of the paying customers. This this guy told me that the, the guard or the trustees have been told to run around calling out. Well, my name was Daniel Westlake in, in the, That was the passport I had. Daniel, Daniel. He said it was like somebody had lost a sheep or something like that and was trying to call him back, but reluctantly accepted that somehow, uh, because they didn't even see the ladder on the outer wall, on the inner of the outer wall, uh,
0: for quite some time. So how did you work out where to go from Singapore? Because you had to get out of there. You couldn't stay there. When I travelled
1: through Afghanistan on business and pleasure, I'd met uh, a tribal lord in Balochistan. I I went to stay uh, with him. He'd been wanted for the um, September 30 massacre, in which 130 people had died in the streets, supposedly at his hand. Jesus. So he was somebody to be taken seriously. So how were you able to stay with this guy? He
0: sounds like a bad, bad man. I stayed with him as his foreign advisor, his westerner. And that's probably a whole... Another podcast, I'm guessing. (laughs) Whereabouts can people find out more about you and and what books should they read to get more of an idea of what you've been up to since then?
1: Well, um, the one to get a hold of, I suppose, is the one that covers so much, uh, like a 39-year career of disasters and, and being saved. Uh, called
0: Unforgiving Destiny, which they need only go to uh, Amazon and uh, that'll direct them. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show, David. And thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to share this on social media. And if you're looking to create a podcast, if you want to get involved in podcasting, you might be a business, you might be an individual, give me a shout. Just email andy at podrowproductions.com.